Nice to be with you once again. Let us say a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together, time to be fellowship, time to join and seek you through your scriptures. Teach us, Lord. Prompt us. Guide us. Pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. Amen. <clears throat> well, as Dozy said, he uh, asked me if I would share some words from a testimony, and um, perhaps uh, something like this. So the idea of this came up from the Paris weekend, where I, I shared some things uh, of my story, and uh, the feedback I got from that uh, was was quite encouraging. But um, I don't don't want to just give a, a kind of autobiography of my life. That wouldn't glorify the Lord. At all. So I, I want to say there's been a couple or many recurring themes throughout uh, my life's journey, and I want to read a couple of passages uh, which uh, sort of highlight those themes. And uh, by referring to that, I hope it may speak into your situation as well. So the first reading is uh, an Old Testament reading, and um, it's from Isaiah. Chapter 49 and 736 in your pew Bibles, your church Bibles, 736. Isaiah 49, reading verses 14 to 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. And the second reading is from the New Testament, uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, Jesus' final words before he ascended. Uh, to be with the Father, Matthew 28 and verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks be to God for his word to us this morning. So I've... Uh, I've got a couple of books I'm in need. One is the book I've just read from the Bible. Uh, and the other is this little book, which I'm going to read an excerpt from because it's um, the most concise way I can relate to you the story of the car accident which left me in this wheelchair. And actually, uh, it makes it quite you know, easier for me to talk about it. So, uh, But 
I'm not afraid of talking about it. I'm just afraid of taking too long to say it. So uh, that's that's why I'm going to. The, the lady who wrote this book, uh, Rebecca Dormer, uh, authored, interviewed me for for this book, and uh, so it's my words in her book. But until I get there, uh, just tell you a little bit about myself. Obviously, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Northern Ireland, a place called Portadown, uh, and uh, I had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. Uh, Mum and Dad, both believers. Uh, and uh, But I knew and was brought up to know that uh, you have to make your own way and you have to uh, choose Christ or, or choose not to follow him uh, throughout uh, your life's journey. And uh, so I remember at, a, at the age of 10 years old, as a young boy, uh, hearing something from one of the church services I'd been to, uh, that the Lord was going to return a second time. And uh, I went home that day, uh, that night, uh, thinking, if the Lord came back, he wouldn't come back for me. And I was devastated to think that of, of my Christian family and a, a lot of Christians around me, that the Lord was coming back for them, uh, and I hadn't made the right decisions, even as a 10-year-old, uh, to uh, follow him and invite him into my heart. Uh, and I, I, I went to my mom and I said, is this really true? Is he going to come back again? And she said, it is true. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that he won't be coming back for me. And in her wisdom, my mom just said, uh, you can make that right just by going back to your bedroom, kneel at your bed, and invite him into your life, and your life will be changed forever. And I did that by myself. I went and I knelt, and I just a very simple childlike prayer. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in to stay. And... That decision at that age made the pattern for the rest of my life. Uh, you, there was no fireworks, there was no neon sign saying, you're my son, I'm well pleased with you, or anything like that. I, I just knew that I was safe. I knew I was saved. And all through school, I went into the grammar school then, and I, the people I mixed and mingled with was, I was involved in sport and things like that. And, and um, the, this thing of KB, which was my nickname being a Christian, amused a lot of these people. And I took a lot of stick for it. And it toughened me up, and it learned and taught me to argue the case and really, truly believe in what the decision I had made. I wore a little badge in my lapel at the uniform. It said, Jesus saves. It was written in little Coca-Cola writing. Do you remember that, those little badges? A little metal badge. And my mates would say, hey, take that off. And I, and I would always say, I will never take this badge off. Jesus saves is what I'm about. And, and, and I said, if you want to take it off, just rip it off yourselves. And there's plenty of times guys got me up by the lapels, but they wouldn't take this badge off me. And throughout my time at grammar school, it became a little testimony uh, about me and something that I owned, uh, and that uh, declaring that the Lord had saved me and that he saves. So I uh, 
was brought up, as I said, in, in, in Northern Ireland, and um, the troubles were at, at, at the height of the troubles when I was at grammar school. I saw quite a bit. I think everybody at that time in Northern Ireland was touched in some way by the troubles. I think I've mentioned here before that uh, my maths teacher was uh, blown up and survived in, in, uh, in, in a, a, a explosion in Belfast, and she came back a year later. Uh, she'd lost her uh, her leg, one of her legs, and part of her uh, an arm. And she came back and was a real testimony to me uh, because she was a Christian teacher, and and how she behaved afterwards uh, became a pattern for for me in how a Christian can glorify God without telling repeatedly about the story of the accident or the bomb or the explosion. Uh, and that teacher was, was just such a radiant testimony of uh, Christ living in her. And she's, I've, I've contacted her quite recently to, to, to ask if I can uh, write about her. And, uh, and she's still going on with the Lord and, and radiant for him. Uh, but Perhaps because of what was going on in the Troubles, I chose to uh, come to England to study. I, I went to Manchester University. Uh, it was a very good university for accountancy, which is a, a, a route I was going down. It was also a very good university for hockey, which was probably my main reason for choosing it, because uh, at that stage I was being quite successful in the, in the world uh, of hockey, and my studies in Fred were somewhere further down the, the batting order of, in significance. Um, but Manchester University, and I got involved in the Christian Union there. I loved to see my friends being challenged. I got involved in the mission there and saw friends getting saved, and uh, had this passion just uh, for uh, seeing people touched and transformed by uh, Christ. And uh, then after the university, uh, I went to uh, Yorkshire, uh, to Wakefield to study um, to, to my first job as, a, as an accountant, as a trainee accountant. Uh, and uh, you could say everything was going hunky-dory for me because I, I was a young man, 22 years old, and uh, I, I was sporty, I was flirty, you could say, and I... I I had a four-bedroomed, uh, detached house at the age of 22. I had a good job. Uh, and then something happened, and I just want to relate that to you uh, through the story written in this uh, book, Broken But Blessed. At the age of 23, it looked like I had it all going for me. I had a good job as an accountant, I played hockey in the Premier League, was an outside chance of being selected for Great Britain in the 1980 Olympics. I owned a four-bedroom detached house, was a practicing Christian. What more uh, could I have wished for? Then on the 30th of May 1979, the bottom fell out of my world. I was on a church week away, hiking in the beautiful Lake District, and some friends had just climbed with me, had climbed Buttermere Fell with the spectacular views over Lake Buttermere. 
Honister Pass and the famous Honister Slate Mines were below. We hiked back via Derwent Fell, passing to, pausing to enjoy the vista of mountains and valleys. Returning to our campsite a short time later, we were nearing the top of Honister Pass when our car stalled on a one and three incline. It sped backwards, hit the wall on one side, and crashed over the side of the mountain pass, falling into the ravine below. I was thrown out of the car, landed with the car, pinning me face down in the stream with a complete spinal cord fracture at the level of the 11th thoracic vertebrae. My back was broken, my lungs were pierced, I was paralyzed from the waist down. As I lay there waiting for the ambulance, I heard the words of the Lord clearly in my heart. I am with you always. This verse went through my mind repeatedly as I battled for life and later in intensive care. Returning to work as an accountant with full-length calipers now as my way of walking, I was no longer a cocky youngster who set off to the Lake District the previous year. I now saw the needs of people around me. One was an alcoholic, another had cancer. One was estranged from his wife, while the next was rich but lonely. And as I prayed and read the Bible, I felt challenged to give up my business and become a full-time pastor. Not only had the accident paralyzed me for life, it had changed me spiritually. So that's part of a little chapter in that book called Broken But Blessed. And it tells the story of the crash which uh, left me paralyzed. Um, as I said, it's not something I, I often talk about. It's not something I find hard to talk about. Um, because the Lord was especially close to me at that time. And this recurring theme that I referred to in the first reading is the, uh, for those who choose to question whether the Lord uh, could forget us or forsake us. And he said, I can never do that. And that kept coming back to me, even when it seemed to be contrary to that, that the Lord does never forsake us. He even says, see, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. That, from that book in, in, in Isaiah 49, uh, the, the children of Israel were familiar with the Babylonians who wrote the names of their gods on their hands. They tattooed the names of their gods on their hands. The Babylonians did. So they were familiar with that sight of names on hands. But in this case, it's flipped the other way. The Lord is saying, I have written your name on my hands. That's how precious we are to him. And I felt that closeness when I was recovering. In, for 10 months, I was in a hospital in Pinderfield's Spinal Injuries Unit in Wakefield. For 10 months, I felt as if words were dropping out of a little pocket New Testament that I had with me. Words were dropping out of that into my heart every day. It was especially close. I went back to uh, the accountancy studies, as, as I said. Uh, but my acquaintance with the Isle of Wight started uh, through the accountancy connection. 
the Accountancy Tuition Center hired the Old Park Hotel uh, in St. Lawrence to run its accountancy courses. Uh, and my firm decided to send me there. It would be better for me to do block release than day release. Uh, so I went to live at St. Lawrence Old Park Hotel uh, for about 10 weeks. I got to know some, fam- some Christian friends there. I attended the Alpine uh, Christian um, Fellowship at the, the, the Gospel Hall there. I thought I was heading for uh, St. Catherine's Church, but I took a wrong turn. I ended up at the Gospel Hall, and I met quite a few friends uh, there and still in touch with them uh, to this day. But that brought me acquainted with the Isle of Wight, and we, as a family, uh, I met Jenny shortly after, and we were married in uh, 1986. I hesitated there. Uh, but uh, I, I do remember it. Um, I was married in, in, in 1986, but we kept coming backwards and forwards to the Isle of Wight almost every year uh, as, as a, a place that was dear to our hearts. Um, uh, but there was one instance which happened. I'd started to uh, almost, well, to be blunt with it, I'd started to wallow in self-pity. I started to think that uh, God was a, a distant God, not a personal God, a God I could never deny that God existed. I could never deny that he was a creator and a, a beauty around me. But I started to fight with the idea about whether he was personal or not, whether he knew exactly how I was feeling, or almost like he, he set us off living and he was watching us from afar. And you often hear people talk like that, don't you? The him up there type of God. Uh, when I was uh, became a hospital chaplain, people often say, well, him up there mustn't be very happy with me. Uh, and, and you could tell when people use that phrase that God has become distant if they're talking about God like that. And I started to wallow in this kind of self-pity that he's happy for me to run around here like a little disabled boy in a wheelchair and, and be his witness or whatever, uh, but, but he doesn't actually know the pain that I feel. He doesn't know the, the hurt. He doesn't know that I feel trapped uh, now that I'm married and looking forward to a, 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 a new life together. He didn't, he didn't seem to know that I felt trapped in this body of, of being uh, disabled. And uh, we were on the Isle of Wight of visiting, staying with our friends John and Margie Wells and Alpine Road in Ventnor. Some of you will know them. Uh, and um, I just went up to my room to have a, a quiet time. Uh, and uh, I was doing one of my angry prayers, which was probably something along the lines of God, you'd you don't really know what it's like and that, uh, you know, the, how can you see my tears? You don't know, even when I, when I weep, it, it means nothing to you. And it was that kind of uh, almost like um, a, a, a monologue with God. And I wasn't even expecting to be heard. It was just a rant. Uh, and how God answered me at that time totally blew me away. As I was praying this rant, I started to cry and weep. And I, I didn't really know what was happening to me, but I was almost taken over by, by sobbing. Uh, and and my, my chest kept almost 
um, palpitating with this sobbing. I couldn't bear the, the pain of it, and, and I, I, I didn't know what was happening to me, but the Lord was responding to me. And what happened then was as I was taken in a vision, and in that dream and vis- or vision, I was taken to Gethsemane. And as I was brought to Gethsemane, I could see Jesus in the garden, and he could see me. And I knew the disciples were over there, and I knew they were resting or sleeping, as the Scriptures teach us. And it came to the part where, and I was observing rather than being a part of it, and when it came to the part of Jesus saying to the Father, can you take this cup of suffering from me? And then he says, not my will but thine be done. In this vision, as I observed what was going on, Jesus laying on this large scree rock, and I could see the olive trees around. Uh, And he said this phrase, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And then in my vision, there was a pause. And as in that pause, he turned and he looked at me. And in that moment of looking at me, he knew everything. And he looked back to the Father and he said, I'll take it. Not my will, but yours, Father. I find it hard to talk about, as you can see, but it, and this sobbing kept overwhelming me. And this was an answer to me who who dared to say to him, you've forsaken me. How could he forsake me? And he answered me and he says, right back in the garden of Gethsemane, he knew me and he chose to take the cup of suffering and the cross for me and you still in the dream and still heart sobbing. Jenny comes into the room and she, I couldn't tell her what was wrong. She thought I was having some major crisis. She, I could hear her talking, but I didn't know how to respond to her. And all I could hear her saying was, is it good or is it bad? And I just said, it's good. <laughs> and, and so she, she left me. Well, she stayed with me, but she, she, I continued in that place of imagining and, and the vision. And from there, I started to soar in this vision. And I was, I couldn't see myself, but I could see what I was seeing. And I, I soared up above a mountain range. And as I soared up above this mountain range, I could look down and I saw a crater lake, and the crater was filled to the brim. It was in a mountain range, but it was a crater filled to the brim of water. And I said to the Lord, Lord, why why are you showing me a crater lake? Why are you showing me a lake full of water? And as I soared 
up over this, looking down on this, he said, that's a lake of tears. He said, for every tear you have sobbed, I have wept tenfold. And not one tear has been lost. Every tear has been held. I found a verse after this to, to give authority to this word. It's in Isaiah 58, verse 6, or 56, verse 8. Um, oh, there it is. Isaiah 56, verse 8. I have held your tears in a bottle. I have held your tears in a bottle, said the Lord to the psalmist. Not one tear is lost. And the Lord said to me at that time in that vision that for all of those who weep, He weeps with them and He holds the tears. He doesn't airlift us out of the crisis. He is with us in it. And as I sobbed and gradually came out of that place of brokenness, I realized that he was answering me and my angry rant saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your name is written on the palm of my hand. And he says that to you as well. So as I said in the story, we I felt called to... Uh, give up the accountancy practice, which I ended up owning and um, still exists today, an accountancy practice with my name on it in Wakefield. But it was bought off me by uh, the, the tax manager who, who worked for me. Um, but we went to Durham and studied. I studied at Cranmer Hall, which is uh, part of Durham University. And the Lord miraculously provided for us a, a home in Durham when uh, it all fell through about uh, a month before we were due to go uh, to, I was due, or we were due to go as a family to Durham, uh, the house fell through, and the Lord, and I even slept on the floor of a, a little study in, in uh, Durham University. I never told anybody. I just crashed out because I had nowhere to sleep, but I went and started the course with nowhere to live, uh, and a few days later, the Lord miraculously provided uh, a house for us, and we moved finally. After that, I returned to, to Wakefield to uh, St. Andrews to be, uh, a, well, to be a curate in, in, in a church called St. Peter's, but then I went back to be uh, a vicar at the church where I had married Jenny, a church where I had been the youth worker, uh, a church where my business was in the parish, uh, and so the Lord has a way of bringing things around again and using uh, our past experiences uh, to touch the hearts of others. So there uh, I was at St. Andrews, uh, and um, the Lord uh, taught me much as a minister in a church there. But uh, I'd started helping out at uh, the hospice in the parish as a, a volunteer chaplain, and I know uh, Dozy's doing that now here at St. Mary's for, for us. Uh, and I started out that way, and then I hadn't ever wanted to go back into Pinderfield's Hospital, which was across the road and still in the parish of the church where I was a vicar. Uh, but I felt prompted and challenged by this, 
uh, and I went back and I saw the chaplain and he said uh, that he would love to have me on the team there uh, as an honorary or a volunteer chaplain at the, the, the Penderfields. And I found when I was going back in to be a chaplain in the hospital, it was the day of the week that I looked forward to the most. And the Lord started speaking in my heart that uh, my ministry was going to be in health care uh, and in chaplaincy and ministering to people. I found myself speaking to, to people who uh, had spinal injuries like I had years and years before, and I was able to empathize with them about uh, what they were going through. And uh, very rarely did I talk about my own accident because I was helping them express where they were on their journey and often was able to pray with them and talk to them about the Lord being able to journey with them if they would only invite him in. An opportunity came up from uh, there for me to be a part of uh, the chaplaincy team full-time at Leeds Teaching Hospitals, uh, and I became a full-time chaplain there at uh, one of the, well, it was at the time the largest hospital in the country, Leeds Teaching Hospitals, NHS Trust. And it was a great place for me to become a chaplain because I pretty much faced every situation. My first on-call call-out was a a motorway crash at three in the morning uh, and uh, a pile-up which involved uh, multiple injuries and uh, fortunately uh, no deaths but uh, multiple injuries that I was called to be in the A&E to be with the families. But it was a great place for me to learn and, and, uh, and develop uh, as, as a chaplain. I find when people come into hospital, givens like uh, health and, um, and mobility and, and jobs and, and everything, givens like that are stripped away and people feel quite isolated. And then along comes the chaplain in a wheelchair. And without me saying anything, there seemed to be empathy. There seemed to be a kind of a rapport. People would nod at me and say, oh, you've been through it too. So I didn't need to say much, but it seemed that I was able to connect and have a quick access into people's situations, and they drew me, drew me into their... Um, their world and often talk to me about their families and through that it developed into conversations. And people ask you some incredible questions when you're a chaplain. Uh, Things that you wouldn't just bump into people in the street and they wouldn't say, do you really think there is a God? Or People would say to me, "Um, do you really think there is a heaven? Uh, Or or, as I said earlier, he would say, him up there thinks you know, I must have done something wrong to put me in here. Uh, Or or he would say things like, um, oh, why do you think this has happened to me? And they're inviting the chaplain to share with them. And they drew me into their story, and often it led to me to speaking to them about how the Lord can transform their lives. Interestingly, when I was in Wakefield Diocese, I was made a diocesan evangelist because it's always been in my heart to see people come to faith. And they made me a diocesan evangelist while I was a minister in Wakefield. 
But I saw more people come to faith in my time as a chaplaincy minister than I ever saw as an evangelist in the wake of diocese. The Lord gives opportunities. People are seeking and searching. Now, you can't go in there and ram it down people's throats, but you can wait for them to bring the situation up for you to give them the truth and share with them how Christ can transform their lives and meet them where they are. I don't even know how long I've spoken, but I'm, I, I feel like I should finish with a story uh, of a, a lady called Pamela, who um, Pamela w- was uh, somebody who I was called to visit in on the wards and hospital. She's had a cancer diagnosis, uh, and it was terminal, and she was told it, it, uh, that she hadn't long to live and was quite devastated, obviously, by the news. And I went to see Pamela, and uh, she said, I feel a fraud by asking to see you. And I said, why is that? And she said, well, because I feel like I've never bothered with God until something like this happens. And I said, well, God's not like that. He, he longs that none should perish. He wants you to approach him right now. And uh, I said, you know, I'll get to know you over the next few days and weeks and we'll, we'll just keep talking and we'll see how it goes. I gave her one of those little books, Journey Into Life, and I talked her through it and I said, look, we'll not do the prayer right now. I want you to read this over again and I'll come and see you tomorrow. The next day I went to see Pamela and her face was beaming. She said, I prayed the prayer. I did it. And I said, what, the one on the back? is? yeah, I said it. And I said, how do you feel? She said, I feel lighter. I feel like a burden has been lifted. And I said, that's because you have new life. The Lord has come in and he is living within you. And over the weeks I got to know Pamela, she said about a week later that she wanted to be baptized. I thought, well, how do I baptize this person? She's all connected to tubes and things. And I said, we'll do it. And there was a chapel that that we were able to go to, and she said, can I bring my family? And I said, yeah, of course, bring them all. Bring as many people as you want. And on the day of Pamela's baptism, her son were there, her grandson was there, and uh, her sister was there, and all their family. There seemed to be like, I don't know, maybe a dozen or more people. And we gathered together, and we said we were going to baptize Pamela because she'd made this decision to follow Christ for the rest of her life. And afterwards, she would be with him in glory. And she stopped me and said, my son wants to baptize his son as well. Is that possible? Uh, and I said, yeah, we'll do, we'll do your grandson as well. Uh, and then, 
So we went through the service, and I started with the grandson, because that seemed a sort of Church of England thing to do. And I baptized the young boy who was, you know, about seven or eight years old. Uh, and she had the joy of seeing her grandson baptized. And then we baptized her, and there wasn't a dry eye in the place as we committed her, and she made her promise, and she made her testimony to the, all those friends. And I prayed a prayer at the end of the service, and it was wonderful. But it wasn't the end. Her sister came up to me and said, am I too late to be baptized too? She said, I feel like I've never made a public statement of faith. And we said a little prayer again of her renewing her commitment to the Lord. And I called people around again, and we baptized her sister. So Pamela, her grandson, and her sister were all baptized at that time. Isn't that wonderful that the Lord can do something? And of course she died. I went to see her at the hospice a few weeks later. It wasn't long. A few weeks later, and I said to her what effect she had been in her short Christian life and that she was going to see Jesus. And she knew she... She was. Her name was in the book of life. And I said to her, watch out for me, because I'm coming to you. And we both knew we were headed. We, we were headed to, be, to a place which we would call home. That we're journeying through this life. That this world is not our home. We're passing through. And Pamela is there, and I will see her again. And the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let me remind you that whatever you're going through, your names are etched on his hands, tattooed, permanent. He will never leave you or forsake you or forget you. He loves you with that kind of love. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, I thank you for challenging us who would dare to say to you, have you forgotten us? Who would dare to say to you, have you forsaken us? And you answer, I could never do that. Thank you, Lord, that you went to the cross for us, that you paid for us by your precious blood. We offer ourselves afresh to you, Lord. We will serve you for the rest of our days. Help us to influence others, Lord, in the way we share our testimony and the way we influence uh, and speak about you to others. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.